before David became the king of Israel, there was a dark period uh, during which he was in exile in the wilderness because the reigning king Saul was relentlessly trying to kill him. Now, you can read the uh, historical account of these events in 1 Samuel chapters 21 through 31. But just in summary, David had served King Saul faithfully, but King Saul was threatened by him. And so Saul accused David of, of being a traitor who aspired to assassinate him, lead an insurrection, and take his throne. And for eight years, King Saul pursued David as if he was a fugitive. For David, the wilderness became a place of fear and anxiety. The wilderness became a place of physical deprivation and spiritual confusion. Wondering why the Lord was allowing this to happen and how long it would go on. On the best days, David was waiting. On the worst days, David was desperate. David had done absolutely nothing wrong. He was completely innocent. And yet he was being accused of being a traitor and hunted like a fugitive. He had proved his innocence time and time again in the wilderness, and yet it continued. You'll like remember two famous stories from the wilderness. One time David was hiding in a cave, and King Saul came into the cave to relieve himself. The Bible sometimes gets pretty graphic. And as David was hiding in the darkness, he could have easily cut off Saul's head, but instead he cut off the corner of his robe. And when Saul and his men had gone a distance away, David emerged from the cave and shouted to the king and to his armies, holding up the piece of his robe. He declared, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. David was innocent. He wasn't a traitor. On another occasion, David and one of his elite commandos snuck into Saul's camp while they were sleeping. And he took Saul's spear and his hydro flask right from beside his head. And in the morning, David came out onto a hill far enough away. And he called out to the army and he held up. Saul's spear and his hydro flask. And he said, and I quote, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? What have I done? I will not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. I'm innocent. David was innocent. But he was being mistreated, lied about, falsely accused, and attacked. Can you imagine his desire for vindication? 
Well, that's the most likely context for our sermon text this morning. That period of time during which David was in the wilderness. And if it's not the exact historical context, it's a good example of the kind of difficulty that caused David to pray the prayer that we find in Psalm 17. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 17. We're working our way through book one of the Psalms. This morning we find ourselves in Psalm 17. And as we consider David's prayer this morning, we're going to learn how to respond to evil while doing good. How do we respond when we're treated with evil while doing good? Psalm 17, a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They have set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They're satisfied with children, and they leave their abund abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. That's God's word. Psalm 17 is the prayer of David. Do you see that at the very beginning in the title, the inspired title? Psalm 17, a prayer 
of David. And then look at verse 2. You'll notice that David is praying specifically for vindication, not just help, not just deliverance, but specifically for vindication. And I think it makes sense that this prayer is in the context of David's wilderness. And, And I've thought about this this week. Not only do scholars suggest this, but I see it in the text. At least three reasons. First of all, the substance of Psalm 17 fits the occasion, doesn't it? Secondly, uh, the enemies of Psalm 17 are spoken of as a group and a person. Did you notice that? Did you notice that in verse 9, my deadly enemies, plural? In verse 10 and 11, they and they. And then look at verse 12, he. He is like a lion eager to tear, a young lion lurking in ambush. In verse 13, arise, O Lord, and confront him, subdue him. So at a minimum, if this is not King Saul and his army, at a minimum, this is a leader and his group who are attacking David. And and then I, I suggest that it fits with the sequence of Psalms here because Look at Psalm 18, which we'll deal with next week. Psalm 18 is specifically written and recorded in the historical context of King Saul and David's wilderness. Look at the the title of Psalm 18. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And as you heard in his prayer, regardless of the context, David was experiencing real suffering. He was in a real quandary, and yet he had real trust in God. And that's what I want for you, friends. If you look at Psalm 17, just follow me. There are five major divisions of this prayer. Five major divisions. Notice in verse 1 and 2 that David prays for vindication. Then in verse 3 through 5, David maintains his innocence before the Lord. Verse 6 through 9, David takes refuge in God for protection rather than taking matters into his own hands. Verse 10 through 14, David calls on God to judge his enemies. God, you arise. You take up your sword. You take these matters into your hands. Judge my enemies. And then verse 15, David ultimately trusts the Lord with the outcome. And God does deliver him. That's next week, Psalm 18. Friends, this is the prayer of David. But Psalm 17 has a greater fulfillment than David. Psalm 17 is also the prayer of the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was innocent. And yet Jesus was treated with evil. He was mistreated. He was lied about. Jesus was falsely accused. Jesus was beaten brutally and then executed by the chief priests and by the Roman authorities. Think through the Gospels 
And you'll see that Jesus fulfilled Psalm 17. Jesus prayed to his father for help. Jesus maintained his innocence. Jesus took refuge in God for protection rather than taking matters into his own hands. Jesus called on God to judge his enemies. And Jesus ultimately trusted God with the outcome, did he not? Friends, this is the gospel. God ordained this suffering so that Jesus would fulfill his plan of redemption. Jesus was innocent, yet he experienced the evil of men in order to become a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners like me and you. One of Jesus' disciples, Peter, wrote about this later in 1 Peter chapter 2. Christ committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and by his wounds we are healed. Friend, if you're not a Christian, maybe God brought you here today so that you could hear this good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus has already paid the penalty for sin. He calls you to turn away from your sin today and to follow him by faith. He will forgive you of your sin and he will make you righteous before God. What grace! And my Christian friend, for those of us who have been redeemed by the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, for those of us who have been filled with the Spirit of Christ, and for those of us who have been given now a new heart that desires to glorify Jesus by doing good even when we experience evil. Psalm 17 is not just the prayer of David and the prayer of Jesus, but Psalm 17 becomes our prayer. In that same passage, when Peter wrote to the suffering Christians, Peter encouraged them. To this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Christians, we have been called to return good for evil. 
to maintain our innocence, even if we're treated as if we're guilty. So Christian friend, I'll ask you this morning. Have you been taken advantage of? Have you been mistreated or lied about or falsely accused? Have you been attacked? Maybe this is your present wilderness. Does someone harbor anger and bitterness against you and all you have done is been loyal to them and try to love them? This prayer of David teaches us five lessons about how to respond to evil while doing good. How do we respond in a way that honors the Lord Jesus Christ? From Psalm 17 this morning. The first lesson that we learn is in verse 1 and 2. Lesson number one, we learn to pray for God's help. We learn to pray for God's help. Read again verse 1 and 2. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. David is experiencing evil for good. He's been treated as if he's guilty when he's entirely innocent. What's the first thing that he does? He goes to God for help. That means that he doesn't endure it silently. Because enduring such difficulty silently can easily lead to a growing bitterness and a deadly hopelessness and a perpetual victimhood. So go to God for help, friends. David prayed for God's help, which means that he did not take matters into his own hands. He put the matters in God's hands through prayer. Look at verse 1. David prayed passionately. Here. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer. Let your eyes see what's going on here. And David prayed for vindication. Look at verse 2. From your presence, let my vindication come. Listen, friends, God is a God of justice. He cares about justice more than we do. His eyes see what's right. And vindication will come from his presence. We can be confident of that. Matthew Henry says, If you are blackened and abused and misrepresented by unrighteous men, it is a comfort that you have a righteous God to go to. He is the patron of the oppressed. His judgment is according to truth. Every person and every cause will appear in a true light 
strips of all false colors, and every man will be rendered according to his work. Friends, pray. Go to God as your first resort. Now, if... (laughs) Like David, God does not seem to answer your prayer for, say, eight years. William Plummer reminds us, it's not unusual for God to delay for a season the execution of justice, even in behalf of his people. Delay is not refusal. He will come at the best time. Therefore, Men ought always to pray and not to faint. First lesson, pray for God's help. Don't suffer in silence. Don't take matters into your own hand. When we experience evil while doing good, lesson number two. We learn to respond according to God's word. Psalm 17 gives us two responses in verses 3 through 5. Just follow me through verse 3 through 5 for a moment. Response number one, you'll notice that David examined himself. David appeals to God based on his innocence. Look at verse 3. You have tried my heart. You have visited me. speaking to God. You have visited me by night. You have tested me. And you will find nothing. David's innocent. He's not arrogant. He's not claiming sinless perfection. He's just claiming to be innocent of these false charges, these specific accusations that are being leveled against him. The humble response to accusations and conflict with others is to examine our own hearts first and ask God to examine us. Now listen, friends, if our first response is pride and anger, and self-defense, there's a problem. But the humble response is to examine ourselves and to invite God to examine us. And the truth is, it's it's a rare experience that when there's conflict with others, we're truly innocent. In this case, David was. More often than not, our sin has added to the conflict. And when that's true, we need to repent. We need to confess. We need to make things right. But Psalm 17 shows us the beauty of a clear conscience. When false accusations come, when you are mistreated, A clear conscience will enable you to keep going, but a guilty conscience will stop you dead in your tracks. 
we learn to respond according to God's word. There's a second response here in verse 3 through 5. We respond to others with righteousness. So the first thing to do is to examine our own hearts when there's conflict, but then respond to them in a way that honors God. Listen, David had done nothing wrong, but doing nothing wrong when wrong is being done to you, that is a different and far more difficult feat, isn't it? How great was the temptation to cut off his head instead of cutting off his rope? How great was the temptation to end this evil man? How hard was it for David to hold his tongue and his sword from lashing out in anger? But David did not sin in response. He was innocent and he maintained his innocence. Oh, that's beautiful, isn't it? He was innocent. And when conflict came, mistreatment, lies and accusations, he maintained his Innocence. Look at the pains that Jesus, uh, that uh, David took and Jesus. Look at the pains that David took in verse three through five to avoid sinning. Look, verse three. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. Verse four. By the word of your lips, O God. I have avoided the ways of the violent. In other words, he didn't return violence for the violence that was coming at him. Verse 5, my steps have held fast to your paths and my feet have not slipped. William Plummer's right. If there was ever a time that personal vengeance could have been right, it was here. And yet David did not return evil for evil. Friends, God's people, the people of the innocent, gracious, good Jesus must return good for evil. We must. So let's just push pause for just a moment and talk about this, because this is at the heart of Psalm 17. We must return good for evil. Here's what Jesus says about this. In Luke 6, Jesus taught, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. These are the words of Jesus. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for He is kind 
to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. We must return good for evil. Paul picked this theme up to the church at Rome, where you can imagine the kind of persecution that the Christians in Rome were enduring. Romans chapter 12, Paul said to those Christians, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Oh, friends, but, but we want in our nature to respond with revenge, don't we? We want to return harshness. John Flavel, English Puritan in the late 1600s, wrote a book that we're reading, Sherry and I, called Keeping Your Heart. He's been helpful. Flavel says, When your fleshly reason argues, my enemy deserves to be hated, let your conscience reply, but does God deserve to be obeyed? By revenge, you can satisfy your sinful desires, but by forgiveness, you'll conquer them. Flavel continues, suppose by revenge, you will destroy one enemy. I will show you how by forgiving, you will conquer three your own sinful desires, the devil's temptation, and your enemy's heart. Is not this a more glorious conquest? By your revenge, you overcome your enemy, but you are overcome by your own corruption. And in true Puritan style, Flavel says, Objection? If I put up with such abuses, I will be reckoned a fool and everyone will trample on me. Solution? You may be reckoned so among fools, but God and good men will count it your wisdom and the excellency of your spirit. It must be the base spirit indeed that will trample on a meek and forgiving Christian. Friends, we must return good for evil. And when we do, we display the gospel, grace, and glory 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, for it is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called Christian, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Rather than responding with revenge, what do we do? Lesson number three. Lesson number three. We learn to seek refuge in God's love. We don't seek revenge. We seek refuge in God's love. Look at verse six through nine. David said, I will call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries in your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. We don't take matters into our own hands. Instead, we seek refuge from our enemies in God. Why? Because God is, as verse 7 says, he is the savior of those who seek refuge in him. God takes personal responsibility for everyone who runs to him for salvation from their enemies. Isn't that great news? Personal responsibility. Now imagine if your little girl was being chased by a German shepherd and she ran to you screaming and hid behind you. Uh, would you step out of the way and leave her vulnerable to the dog's attack? Of course not. You'd take personal responsibility. You would do everything in your power to protect her and to save her. Friends, God has infinite power over our enemies. And he is the savior of those who seek refuge in him. Run to him in times of trouble instead of handling it on your own. And look at verse 7. It's very important to note that David uses the language of quote-unquote steadfast love. That's the language of that is God's special covenant love for his covenant people. David requested help from God based on the fact that he is part of God's covenant people. God comes to the rescue of his people, not all people. God is the savior of whom? Those who seek refuge in him. 
And so we understand that this applies to, to those who have been made the children of God by grace through faith in Christ. John 1 says to all who received him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And notice that David uses two metaphors to emphasize the very personal relationship that he has with God and that God has with all of his covenant people, not just the special ones like David and Jesus. These two metaphors are used in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. David said, protect me like a person protects the apple of their eye. That's the black part of your eye. William Plummer tells us that no part of our body is more constantly, instinctively, or carefully guarded than the apple of the eye. The least threat of danger or injury arouses all our powers of defense, and God protects his people as the apple of his eye. David in verse 8 says, hide me from my enemy like a hen hides her chicks in the shadow of her wings. Matthew Henry, God's people have many enemies, but they have one friend that is able to deal with them all. If he be for them, it doesn't matter who's against them. Amen. Listen, friends, but that doesn't mean that God is always going to rescue you from every difficulty, every disease, every evil person. We see a long history of God allowing his people like David, like Joseph, like Job, like Jesus to suffer to accomplish his purposes. So here's what we know. If we're suffering as God's people, it has been ordained by our Father who loves us with an everlasting love. We learn to seek refuge in God's love. And sometimes our Father does not rescue us in the way that we might imagine. I'm sure David felt this way for eight years in the wilderness, did he not? God, how long? When are you going to do this? And so we learn lesson number four. We learn to trust God's judgment. Verse 10 through 14. David trusted God's judgment. He wasn't rescuing David the way that he might imagine, but David trusted that God will act and is acting, even if his enemies continued to prosper. Look at verse 10 through 14. In verse 10 through 12, David describes his enemies. Just look at it there. I'm not going to take the time to read it. David describes his enemies as cold-hearted, arrogant men who have surrounded him like a pride of lions, licking their chops, waiting to ambush. And specifically, this one who 
I think is likely King Saul, the lion who is, is uh, leading the pack. In verse 13, he calls on God to confront the lion, to subdue this lion with his sword and his hand. Which again shows us David's commitment to letting God handle this instead of taking matters into his own hand in his own sword. But look at verse 14. Look in your Bibles, verse 14. Notice how David describes his enemies. They are men of the world whose portion is in this life. These are men who love wealth and power and pleasure. They look on the good things of this world as the best things in life. And it is their pursuit and their satisfaction. They have no need nor desire for God. And the rest of verse 14 seems a bit confusing. Look at the end of verse 14. David talking to God. You fill their womb with treasure. They're satisfied with children. And they leave their abundance to their infants. David is making true statements here. These men don't have any need for God. And yet everything they have has been given to them by God. He has filled their womb with treasure and children. Here's the terrifying truth of it all. They're going to leave all their abundance, all their wealth to their children when God judges them. They find great satisfaction in this life and that's all they have. What a terrifying thought. Van Gemmeren suggests that it might be better understood as a prayer of judgment. May they leave their treasure to their children. Same essence. God doesn't always rescue us in the way that we might imagine. We have to learn to trust that God will act and is acting, especially when we keep seeing our enemies prosper. The person that's lying about us and accusing us, taking advantage of us, is getting away with it. They're getting the raise. They're getting the notoriety. They're getting the good grades. They're getting the position on the team. Doesn't anybody see what they're doing behind the scenes? This is a reoccurring theme in Scripture because it's a reoccurring reality of life. And it's an important perspective for us when we're experiencing this mistreatment of others. They have nothing more than this life. But God sees. God knows. And you can trust that God will judge in his way and in his time. That leads us to lesson number five. When we experience evil while doing nothing but good, we've got to learn to be satisfied with God and his will. 
That's where David ends up. Look at verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Christian, what satisfies you? What are you really looking for? Have you ever wondered why that thing bothers you so much? Does it reveal something about our hearts that it bothers us, troubles us so much? Look at the contrast between 15 and what just came before it. Stark contrast. As for me, they are men of this world who are satisfied with things of this life. What's David's greatest satisfaction in life? God. He wanted nothing more than to do God's will, regardless of how hard. You remember in in our last psalm last week, or two weeks ago, Psalm 16, David said, The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. And so David was driven by the knowledge that when I awake, I will be satisfied with your likeness. Now, what does he mean by when I awake? When you read that this week, what did you think that meant? I think it could mean at least two things. William Plummer suggests when I awake every morning. No matter what my situation is, when I wake every morning and find myself with God, enjoying his favor and his friendship, and so beholding him in his works of providence and grace, I'm satisfied with your likeness. And that's true. But I also think that this is an allusion to the resurrection of the dead. When I awake from the dead into the new kingdom. I will see your face and be satisfied with your likeness. Friends, that's the great hope. No matter what happens here, Jesus promises to make all things new. Jesus will right every single wrong. You can count on it. You don't have to fight your own battles. You don't have to be angry and lash out. Jesus sees, cares. He is the judge who sits on the throne. And Jesus Christ will right every wrong. So Christian, I don't know what wilderness you've been experiencing. If someone's lying about you or mistreating you, if they're harboring anger toward you and you have no idea why, because you've done nothing but be loyal to them or love them. If you feel the temptation to take matters into your own hands and get the vindication that I deserve, We've learned something from Psalm 17 this morning, haven't we? Yes, there's a more glorious way 
It's the way of Jesus. Pray for God's help. Respond according to God's word. Seek refuge in God's love. Trust God's judgment and be satisfied with God and his will, regardless of what that means for us. May the spirit of Jesus Christ empower us to follow the example of Christ so that our response displays the gospel and glory of Christ. Let's pray together. That's my prayer, Father. My prayer is that your Holy Spirit will empower us to follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ who suffered evil to do good so that we could be saved. I pray that our response to suffering that comes from people would display the gospel and glory of Christ so that he might be praised by more and more people. We love you and we thank you in his name. Amen.